0: Very much, Hugh. Um, I don't know how well your memory is of time and things like that, but if you're a real good um, calendar type person, a year ago on the first Sunday of August was the first time I got to preach to First Presbyterian Church. Bob Neely, Dusty Doyle, and others on the search committee had decided that I was the right one and got to preach, and you guys voted unanimously. And so here I am a year later, um, after being with you guys for about 11 months. So it's been an exciting time. And a great adventure that God has uh, brought us on. And I'm excited about what God will continue to do as part of our ministry together. Uh, Let us come to the Lord in prayer as we seek His uh, guidance and understanding for His word. Pray with me, please. Dear God, we do give you thanks for your word, for your truth that is within it, and pray for the um, words that I share, that they would be guided by your truth and your Holy Spirit, and that our ears and our hearts would be open to you. Anything that would stray from your truth, that would be quickly forgotten. We ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I love reading the Bible. It shouldn't come as a surprise as a pastor, but the Bible, as I read about the stories of people, even though they didn't have cell phones and automobiles, their challenges and struggles are the same ones that I often have on a daily basis. And there's a great deal that we can learn from their experiences and sometimes what not to do and also what to do. But as we read in the Bible, there are instructions that God gives us, but he only gives us instructions for three human institutions. He only gives us instructions for how the state should operate, for how the church should operate, and how our family should operate. When we look at it in a very critical way, the Bible says nothing about how we should run a business, although there are biblical principles that we follow says nothing about how we should run a school, a hospital, a museum, other things, but there's a specific word that it says about families, and most importantly, about marriage, that we're going to look at this morning. We know that God instituted marriage. Hugh just read the scripture about the first marriage where God was there between Adam and Eve. When Jesus performed his first miracle, it was at a wedding, when he turned the water into wine. And the Bible begins with the wedding here um, between Adam and Eve, and it ends with the marriage of Christ, Christ to the church. Now, I want to give a word of caution to those of you that are in various state of maybe not being married and thinking, oh, this is a sermon about how I should have a better marriage. And it is, but that's not all. Whether you've never been married, whether you're looking to get married, whether you've been married for 50 years or five days, wherever you are in your relationship with other people, this scripture has something for each of us. But this scripture that I'm going to read has some familiar parts, and sometimes it gets taken out of context. I had a friend come up to me in seminary, or probably more of an acquaintance, and he had that question as a pastor, as a seminary student, I always kind of regretted or kind of feared... And the question was, you go to seminary, you know the Bible, right? In my mind, I start flipping through all these books that I've read, and what is he going to ask me? And he asked me after he'd been married for about a year, he says, the Bible says that my wife should submit to me, right? So what I say goes, right? Wrong. (laughs) Well, not exactly. Not even that close. That's a very literal translation, and there's some more depth to understanding it. So before, as we go and understand what Scripture says, let's read it from Ephesians five, twenty-two through 33, which is on page 1,245. Hear the word of the Lord. Wives, submit to your, hu- your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Now, marriage has gone through various shifts throughout time. We look in the Bible and see multiple marriages and, or multiple wives and some of the problems that were there. But um, society in the past hundred years or so along with influences from the Roman Catholic and Protestant Church, can agree that the purpose of marriage was to create a framework for lifelong devotion and love between a husband and wife. It was a solemn bond designed to help each party subordinate individual impulses and interests in favor of the relationship. To be a sacrament of God's love, there's the Roman Catholic influence, and to serve the common good a quote from Tim Keller from his book, um, The Case for Marriage, or The Meaning of Marriage, excuse me. And Tim Keller is one of my favorite authors, a great pastor in New York City. And you're going to hear um, some familiarity if you've read this book, if you're familiar with Tim Keller. Um, also want to let you know that um, there's some great books that Susan Hagan has put out or that it has available on marriage, not only Tim Keller, but other great authors. And our church library is full of wonderful books that help us to understand better how to live in a marriage that um, glorifies God. We've seen the shifts in marriage um, in recent years from this definition where it's a solemn bond designed to help each other, um, devotion between a husband and wife, and we've seen more of this evolution of marriage being that search for the right person. There's this idea in pop culture and a lot of times with individuals that we look at ourselves maybe as kind of like a puzzle piece. But much more complex than a puzzle piece, that we are out there looking for the matching piece. That when we find that other piece of the puzzle, we will fit together and everything will be fine. Everything about me is great. Everything about my wife or my spouse is great and we will come together. There's a New York Times um, article, or, um, writer named Tara Parker Pope who says that in modern relationships people are looking for a partnership and they want partners to make their lives more interesting who help, their, who help uh, each other attain valued goals. So we're on a quest for a partner, a quest for someone that can help us to work in the right way or to get things done, which is a little different than what the biblical view of marriages. And we can see how this is depicted, and it's not just a a new thing in the past 10 years, but really something over the last probably 40 years, 40 or 50 years we've seen, and we can see how it's um, guided or reflected in our TV shows. If we go back to 1965, and how do we get dating? The dating game. We have three bachelors and one bachelorette, and through a series of questions And and answers without seeing each other, they get to decide who is the right person to go on that date. I'm not sure of any statistics of how many connections on this show that actually led to marriages, but a lot of good time and entertainment. As a child who grew up mainly in the 80s, the show I have related to most was Love Connection. I don't know if any of you saw this with Chuck Woolery, but there would be a similar idea, but instead of just being blinded by a wall, they would go on an actual date with another person, and they would um, then share about what happened on their date, and the audience would decide, was that the right person, or should they go out with another person? It's usually pretty funny. I don't know if it helped me in my early days of understanding what dating maybe caused more harm than good, but that's the case for a lot of television. Or our more modern picture of what dating might look like and that is the bachelor or the bachelorette. Really pretty trashy TV shows of uh, desperate men or desperate women trying to find the right person. This idea that the most attractive, most successful man or woman is going to attract the most successful you know, spouse through this series of dating 20 women or 20 men at the same time. And statistics do show that the number of people who actually win the show and go on to get engaged and married? Very, very, very low. So no matter how you find Mr. or Mrs. Right, people have a flawed idea, or flawed view of marriage. Statistics in our own experiences can make, it, make us realize that the idea, the possibility of finding a lifelong spouse, a lifelong partner can be a futile quest. You realize that marriage is hard work and maybe you've come to the point where you want to avoid it, where you realize that I'm just not gonna go there. It's not an option. C.S. Lewis has a wonderful quote that talks about this this ability that we have maybe to, to put off love because we're afraid of getting hurt. Lewis says, love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, You must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. Now, don't get me wrong. There are other ways of expressing love outside of marriage. There are important ways that we can express marriage, but marriage is really the most intimate human relationship that you can enter into. The most intimate human relationship that we can enter into. But it's not easy. As we, as Presbyterians say, when we conduct a wedding, that married should not, marriage should not be entered into lightly. There's become a pattern where people are fearful of marriage and they um, don't want to have a bad marriage, so they settle for living together, giving the relationship a try without the commitment of marriage, thinking that's going to fix it. And there's some commitment, but not really that lifelong of a commitment. A Gallup survey says that a substantial body of evidence indicates that those who lived together before marriage are more likely to break up after marriage. So what do people do? What do people do with a society that says live together, but that's not going to help. Marriage has its problems. Where do we go? Well, I found a new reality show, and I really stumbled on it. One of my favorite TV shows is on the FYI network called Flipping Boston, where they go in and, and change the um, uh, update these houses. Well, they put a new show in the time slot, and it's called Married at First Sight. It's still going on. And what these experts did was they found six individuals after serving hundreds of people. And these um, experts, a psychologist, a spiritualist, and other experts found three couples. They said, based on all their re- research, they were the right puzzle piece to go with each other. And instead of going through these problems of living together beforehand and these problems of dating, they were just going to get married at first sight. So on the first episode, that's what happened. They got down the aisle and there for the first time, they saw their husband or their wife. There's only been, I think, three or four episodes. They've gone on their honeymoon. They've met each other's families. They're living together and seeing what that's like. But that's not the answer. That's not the answer. The problem is not getting people together. The problem is not marriage. The problem is really us. The problem is me. When I look at my um, problems or so many of the problems of society, we can go back to Genesis. Genesis 2, as Hugh read and was quoted in part of our scripture, the first marriage where man and wife come together. And then it's only one chapter later that man and woman and we today continue to buy the sin or the lie that the devil gave us, that we could be gods, we could control things. And sin entered in. Sin entered into our into our relationships, into our lives, and ever since then, all human relationships have had flaws. have had problems with them, but here we are, a thousand or so year, or over a thousand years later, after the marriage, where Paul is writing. Paul is writing to us to tell us what the key is to marriage. And I love reading um, reading Ephesians, reading Paul's writing sometimes because he's like that kid that we all had or knew in school. Maybe you were like that person. And I loved you in some ways. But, you know, that that person when you're in school that is saying, I know the answer. I know the answer. Call me. Call me. And that's what Paul is doing. We're, you know, having these problems. And Paul is saying, I know the answer. And here it is. Here's the answer that Paul gives to our challenges in marriage. Wives, submit to your husbands. And husbands, love your wives. That's it. Well... Not quite. That's the basic framework of what Paul tells us is the foundation for a good marriage. Wives submitting to our husbands, and husbands, love your wives. But he goes on after he talks about the profound about a man and woman leaving their, their parents and becoming one. And he describes it as a profound mystery. The word that he uses, this Greek word is mysterion which means great mystery and it some kind, some type of esoteric knowledge. The scripture, as Hugh read and I read, and I'm going to say it again, verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. He uses the same word to describe this mystery as he uses in other places to describe the saving purposes of Jesus Christ. To describe the purposes of the gospel is the same way he describes the mystery of a man and woman coming together. The more literal translation is that this, is a se- this secret is great. So how we become together is a great mystery. What is the secret? The secret is that husbands, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Those are easy words to say, but if we take a second and think about them, (laughs) they're pretty impossible. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What did Christ do for the church? He willingly went to the cross for the church. He paid the penalty for our sins. He removed our guilt and condemnation so that we could be united with him. He gave up his glory in heaven and power to become a servant. Is that the way that we treat our wives? To be a servant to them? Basically, the answer that Paul is giving to a great marriage is that if you will do for, God, do for your spouse what Jesus Christ did for the church, the rest will follow. The reason that marriage is so painful and yet so wonderful. Is because it is a reflection of the gospel, which is painful and wonderful at once. The gospel is this we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever hoped or dared. God knows our flaws, and at some extent, we're okay with God knowing our flaws. Our spouse and those that were in close relationship, they know some of our flaws too. And that's part of the problem of our dating process because we present ourselves as someone who's got it all together and got it all figured out. And the dating process is the reality of realizing we don't quite have that. My wife, she knows the real me. After 19 years of marriage, she knows the challenges of living with me. She knows that I can be impulsive, she knows that I can stay up too late watching dumb TV shows. She knows that I can commit to too many things, spread myself thin, take for granted my children and my family. And the list could go on and on, but this isn't confession time. This is just example time. Of the reality that all of us have those flaws. And our spouse loves us in spite of those. And our Savior, God, loves them too. And so we run into this conflict, this This budding together of two ideas of marriage. A worldly view of marriage. That we come and we've got everything together. And we find someone else that has everything together. And we fit together just right. It's a give and take. I'll do things and then you'll do things. It'll work out. And if it doesn't, well, we'll go on and find someone else. A 50-50 equation. And a lot of times in the secular view of marriage, there's a lot of scorekeeping. There's a law that dictates things based on My performance and my wife's performance. But in the Christian view of marriage, and what Paul is putting here, there's a beginning appreciation, a beginning understanding that as two individuals come together in marriage, we are both sinners saved by God's grace. We enter into a covenant of marriage, something that God is blessing, God is guiding. The heart of the Christian marriage, when we truly understand it, is forgiveness. Because the heart of being a follower of Christ is also forgiveness. The reality of a Christian marriage is that I give and I give and I give and I give. When we fail to believe the gospel, the problem is that we expect others to do for us what they are fundamentally incapable of doing. We look to our friends, we look to our kids, we look to our coworkers, our job, our spouse to fulfill us in a way that only Christ can do that. The old country song by Johnny Lee says I've been looking for love in all the wrong places. And the problem is not finding the right is not looking for the wrong person. The problem is looking for that person to take upon the role of Christ. It's not it's not looking in the wrong place. It's looking for a human to fulfill the role that only Christ can fulfill. We get confused. The problem is that too often everything you're trying to get in your relationship with your spouse, you already have in Christ. We already have this grace, this gift that's been given to us. And some people are worried, if I give too much and don't put, don't put a boundary on there, don't put a, a gate or a wall or the law, it's a, a license to go and sin boldly because grace is so wonderful. But if that's your attitude towards grace... Maybe your understanding of grace is a little flawed. What does this look like? What does this look like in our lives to live in a relationship that gives and gives and gives as Christ gave to the church? There's an author that I ran across recently called Laura Munson. She's an author and uh, writes for uh, New York Times, I believe, and I didn't know her until I ran across her in my research. But she tells a story about when she was near the end of her marriage in 2009, her husband's job was going south, and things were strained. And here's her, um, her editorial piece of the New York Times. It says, "I don't love you anymore. I'm not sure I ever did." His words came at me like, came at me like a speeding fist, yet somehow, in that moment, I was able to duck. And once I recovered and composed myself, I managed to say, I don't buy it. Because I didn't. He drew back in surprise. Apparently, he'd expect me to burst into tears, to rage at him, and to threaten him with a custody battle, or beg him to change his mind. She turned. So he turned mean. I don't like what you become. Gut-wrenching pause. How could he say such a thing? That's when I really wanted to fight, to rage, to cry, but I didn't. Instead, a shroud of calm enveloped me, and I repeated those words, I don't buy it. I gave him space. I set a table for four, and he had the option to show up or not. There were no ultimatums, only options. And one day, there he was. Home from work early, mowing the lawn. A man doesn't mow the lawn if he's going to leave. Not this man. Then he fixed the door that had been broken for eight years. He made a comment about our front porch needing to paint. Our front porch. He mentioned needing wood for the winter. The future. Little by little, he started talking about the future. It was Thanksgiving dinner that sealed it. My husband bowed his head humbly and said, I'm thankful for my family. He was back. How would Laura Munson's marriage had gone on or ended if she would have said to him, you're right, you don't love me, and here's the way that you've shown it if she had responded to him with a scorecard showing all the things that she had done as a wife and a spouse and a mother and all the things that he had done as a father and they weren't measuring up. Do we ever read in Luke 15 in the story of the prodigal son that when the father welcomed in the son, he said, welcome home, now let's go to the confessional. No, he welcomed him with open arms. Tolian Trevigen Pastor at Coral Ridge Presbyterian says, The law is necessary and important, but criticism does not draw people in. Love draws people in. All the love that I need, I have in Jesus. The passage describes that everything I need, I possess. Because of the great mercy, the great grace that's been given to me in Jesus Christ. To truly believe and live in the gospel is removing the expectation that others will do what they are fundamentally incapable of doing. When I realize that I've truly been fully loved and fully accepted by Jesus Christ, it releases me. It releases everything, every need that I have, that every need that I have, I possess in Jesus Christ. And this is freedom. This is freedom from making others into making others into my image of what is right. It's freedom from feeling I need to do more to please God. It's freedom from finding fulfillment in the way my kids perform. It's freedom in finding the purpose in my job. It's freedom from being my own savior. It's freedom to love others as Christ loves me. The reality is that we have been given such an amazing grace. Grace. And that grace is a vertical grace that comes down. A vertical love that is amazing, that's loving, that isn't based upon performance. It's based upon who we are as children of God. And how do we respond with that vertical love? We respond with horizontal love. Loving others as Christ loved the church. Unconditional servants. When we know and live in the vertical love of Christ... It enables us then to live in the horizontal love for my wife, for my children, for my friends, my enemies, and everyone that I encounter daily. When I'm focused on the grace of Christ, it allows me to love my family, to love my wife, as Christ loved the church. Let's pray. Dear God, as we look at this and understand what it says It is a difficult challenge to love others as you love the church. But the great news is that we don't do this alone. It's not just a book of instructions that we read and go along. It is a promise that you are there with us as we seek you and rest in your grace that your Holy Spirit will guide us. So, Lord, as we think about our relationships, whether it's with our spouse, whether it's with our parents, whether it's with our coworkers, children, whoever it may be, that we would not be looking for them to fulfill the role that you do, the one to give us all that we need, that we would love them, love them in a sacrificial way, in a serving way, and expecting praise and glory not from them but from you for who you are and the way you love us. We ask this all in the powerful and strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This time we have...